Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Trying to make keeping up with the literature easy, and so we're trying to spoon-feed you the latest research. Now then, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering this week. First off, the way all the cool kids are going to start treating PID. Then, do I really need to do an LP for subarachnoid hemorrhage if it's been more than six hours? After that, giving epi more than once for anaphylaxis, followed by ketofol for kids. And then lastly, pocus for your face, peritonsillar abscess edition. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the soulful Graham Van Shake, Nicholas Sreika, Andy Hogan, Lindsay Taylor, and Clay Smith. If I pronounce any of those wrong guys, please shoot me an email. Anyways, the first article from this week was a randomized controlled trial of ceftriaxone and doxycycline with or without metronidazole for the treatment of acute pelvic inflammatory disease out of the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases. So pelvic inflammatory disease, or just PID, is not a pleasant thing. It comes along with a whole spectrum of just unfortunateness, which can cause women a lot of chronic pelvic pain. And besides that, it's also associated with ectopic pregnancies, abscess formation, sepsis, infertility, just no shortage of misery. Currently, the IDSA recommends a treatment of 500 milligrams of IM ceftriaxone, but this study was actually done before that recommendation and they were using 250 milligrams, anyways, and 100 milligrams of doxycycline BID for 14 days. This is great, it's a good treatment regime, but it lacks anaerobic coverage, which could be associated with greater morbidity. Now then, these authors sought to determine if adding metronidazole to the IDSA-recommended treatment would improve clinical recovery at three days, and if anaerobics could then later on be isolated from the endometrium at 30 days following the treatment. So to evaluate that, they conducted a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial that compared the IDSA guidelines to treat PID, which as we said was ceftriaxone and doxycycline, with or without the addition of metronidazole 500 milligrams BID, and the other group actually got a placebo, all for 14 days. So 233 women over a four-year period were followed, with a less than stellar compliance rate to treatment of just under 80%. So the primary outcome, which was improvement in pelvic tenderness at day three, was similar between the two groups. But even though this study was designed for something so early, what I'm more interested is in the longer-term treatment success, which was actually twice as good in the group with metronidazole at just 9% of patients having pelvic organ tenderness at one month out, compared to 20% in the placebo group. Furthermore, as you might expect, there were less positive anaerobic endometrial cultures at one month out from treatment in the metronidazole group. I'd be curious to see if it was those same patients who had pain or not, but that wasn't really mentioned in the study. And lastly, the adverse events rates were similar between the two groups, though metronidazole had slightly more vulvovaginal candidiasis. In all, even with a non-significant primary outcome, I'd say this study is positive. So in a spoonful, adding metronidazole to the IDSA regime for pelvic inflammatory disease was well-tolerated, resulted in less symptoms, as well as less isolates of anaerobic bacteria one month after treatment. And then we have the second article, which was titled, Is a Lumbar Puncture Required to Rule Out Atraumatic Subarachnoid Hemorrhage in Emergency Department Patients with Headache and Normal Brain Computed Tomography More Than Six Hours Out from Symptom Onset? 
Now, then, traditionally, if you strongly suspect a subarachnoid hemorrhage and the non-contrast CT is negative, then you go for the LP and look for xanthochromia. Recent reports state that it looks like a headache that started within six hours and the patient isn't severely anemic or anything that would lower the sensitivity of the test, then a CT scan without contrast alone is good enough as a rule-out test. When it's been more than six hours, though, then even with a negative CT scan, there's less certainty. But do we need that LP? This was an evidence review of four studies, a retrospective cohort study, two prospective cohort studies, and a case control study which assessed the importance of LP in these delayed negative non-contrast CT patients in the workup for subarachnoid hemorrhage. So, comparing CT less than 6 hours to CT in a patient that was more than 6 hours since symptom onset, there was a significant drop in sensitivity. One study showed a drop from 98% to 90%, and a second study showed a drop from 100% down to 86%. If you added in an LP, then one of the studies actually showed that there was a 100% sensitivity of CT with LP up to 14 days after symptom onset. But this came with a lot of false positives due to traumatic taps, and there was only a specificity of 67%. All in all, the authors worked out that the post-test probability for subarachnoid hemorrhage was 1.1% when the CT was done after 6 hours and was negative. The threshold that they felt was appropriate to get the LP would have been a 1% cutoff. Now, given that 1.1 and 1 are pretty well close to being the same number, the authors actually advise that they could leave it up to the ER physician, and then that would be a reasonable decision. And then of course, if you bring in the patient on the decision whenever possible, I think that's always recommended. In a spoonful, there is a significant drop in sensitivity of a non-contrast CT scan to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage when the scan is done after six hours from symptom onset. But adding an LP to the mix is neither perfect nor benign. So whether or not you need an LP is up to you and the patient to decide. And so that brings us to Article 3, the use of multiple epinephrine doses in anaphylaxis, a systematic review and a meta-analysis out of the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. If there's anything to take away from the treatment of anaphylaxis, it's that epinephrine is absolutely crucial. With that being as simple as it is, we need to find other things to worry about. Typically, the thing to worry about is sort of like the length of observation. And that's only a problem because there's such a thing as biphasic reactions where symptoms actually come back. This study is going to look into how often epinephrine needs to be given twice, since this could change whether or not we might be prescribing two auto-injectors or just one, and also how close an eye you want to keep on your patients. So these authors did a systematic review and meta-analysis to examine more than 36,000 anaphylaxis events over multiple settings. They found that there was a 7-12% to rate of needing more than one dose of epinephrine. These findings were kind of weakened by the significant heterogeneity between the 86 included studies, but even after sensitivity analysis, there wasn't really much change in those numbers. They were not able to separate out if the second dose in most of these studies was due to one dose not being enough to resolve symptoms completely, or if it was due to a true biphasic reaction though, so more study might be needed for that. All in all, the authors estimated that there's about a 10% chance of anaphylactic patients needing more than one dose of epinephrine. So these patients definitely need to be reassessed regularly when they're in your department. But does that mean that you should be prescribing two auto-injectors as well? 
Honestly, either way, it's important that these patients come to the hospital as soon as possible. There could be some concern that giving a patient a second dose might allow them to delay presenting. More data on this should be gathered, though, as well as to better assess the risk factors of needing a second dose. In a spoonful, roughly 1 in 10 cases of anaphylaxis that's treated by a physician will require at least two doses of epinephrine. Article 4. Safety and efficacy of the combination of propofol and ketamine for procedural sedation slash anesthesia in the pediatric population, a systematic review and meta-analysis out of the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. Propofol is a nice drug. It has its benefits. If you're going to give a kid too much, though, then they're likely to become apneic, and of course it also drops the blood pressure. In kids, that dose window also feels like it's, it's small. Ketamine, on the other hand, is largely considered to be a little bit more reliable and consistent. But then you risk nausea and delirium upon recovery. It can also increase some muscle tone, which isn't great for some procedures like reductions. So what do we do when neither drug is perfect? Well, of course, we combine the two together. And A plus B equals ketofol. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis of 29 RCTs on the use of ketofol in children for various procedures. So, ketofol upsides. Compared with other single agents and different drug combinations, it was significantly less likely to cause hypotension and bradycardia, as well as non-significantly having a lower risk of apneic events. On the downside though, but none of these being statistically significant, there was an increased risk of hypertension, tachycardia, and possibly cough or laryngospasm. The doses seen in this review covered a wide range, but usually there was more propofol than there was ketamine, and pretty often it was a 3 to 1 mix. In a spoonful, propofol plus ketamine, nicknamed ketofol, used in children was a bit better than using single agents or combinations in terms of hypotension and bradycardia. On a side note, ketofol would make a really good middle name. Anyways, Article 5. Evidence-based medicine improves the emergent management of peritonsillar abscesses using point-of-care ultrasound out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. In the sort of usual assessment of peritonsillar abscess, you can find a hot potato voice, pharyngeal erythema, and an asymmetrical edema that can cause the classic uvula to deviate away from the abscess. These findings are neither sensitive at only 78% nor specific at even worse at 50% for a peritonsillar abscess diagnosis. To upgrade our assessment, however, we now have ready access to ultrasound. So here's how the use of POCUS has made changes to peritonsillar abscess assessment and how often it's used. The authors did a retrospective cohort study on the diagnosis and management of patients with peritonsillar abscess in their emergency department. They reviewed two cohorts of patients, one covering 2007 and 2008, and the other six years later covering 2013 and 2014. They divided each cohort into those where ultrasound was involved in the diagnosis and treatment, and those where the ultrasound was not used. The primary outcome was the use of POCUS, which was significantly lower in the 2007 and 8 group, where there was only 25% of patients who received POCUS compared to the 2013-14 group, where 78% of patients had POCUS used on them. The use of POCUS was also associated with several other things, including higher rates of successful management, less ENT consultations, fewer return visits. These are all great things. The amount of required CT scans was also lower, but the p-value was only 0.07. 
So it's pretty clear that POCUS is playing a role here. And this was just, I mean, still quite a few years ago. I bet that the rates are even better now. In a spoonful, POCUS use has been increasing for the diagnosis and management of peritonsillar abscesses. It's safe, accurate, it avoids consults, and its use has probably only grown more popular since the times that were studied in this study. And that's the end of our articles for this week. Let's do a quick wrap-up of everything that we learned. First of all, we had a study that supported adding metronidazole to the IDSA-recommended treatment for pelvic inflammatory disease. Currently, it's ceftriaxone and doxycycline. Adding metronidazole decreased the amount of pelvic tenderness found at one month. Second, if you're more than six hours from the onset of a possible subarachnoid hemorrhage, then a negative CT scan without contrast is no longer going to be as useful as a rule-out test. Getting an LP to further evaluate this is going to be up to you and the patient to decide on, though. Third, in the case of anaphylaxis, 10% of patients will require a second dose of epinephrine. Fourth, the use of ketofol in kids showed less hypotension and bradycardia compared to the alternatives. Fifth, POCUS helps improve treatment success. It lowers rates of ENT consultations. It is less return visits. And it might lower the radiation exposure when you're trying to treat and diagnose peritonsillar abscess. Now then, you've earned them, we offer them. We have CME credits, which are provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Well, while you're there, you can also subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.